you have your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 5 today. Ephesians in chapter number 5. I'm going to jump right into it. We've got a lot to cover uh, this morning. Um, Ephesians chapter number 5. We have been in this series uh, for several months now. And the first three chapters, the first three chapters taught us um, that we ought to understand the truth of the gospel. What's the gospel? Jesus died. He was buried. And he rose again. And we place our faith in that work of Christ. In that work of Christ alone, we are saved. That's the gospel. We want to understand what that means for us. But then the last three chapters, which is what we're on now, is teaching us how to live out the gospel. Because listen, friend, the gospel doesn't just transform you on the inside. That's where it starts. That's where it begins. But if you've really been changed by the gospel, it finds its way outside. So it gives you a new life. And praise God, a new life for all of eternity, but also gives you a new lifestyle. It gives you a new identity. Praise the Lord. But it also gives you a new activity. Paul's already hit us pretty hard, has he not, with with what it looks like to live out the gospel on the outside. What what does a gospel-driven lifestyle look like? Well, in chapter 4, he taught us that it's one that dwells together in unity with other believers. So if you're a problem causer, a troublemaker a backbiter, a slander, any of those things, then you're not living out the gospel. On on top of living in unity, uh, Paul taught us that that it's it's a church member, that number one's a member of a church, number two's committed enough to use their gifts for the edification of the fellow believers in the church. So if you're not a member of a church, you need to be a member of a church. Number two, if you're not using your gifts and talents in ministry for other believers and the lost world around you, then that's, you're not doing right. I was going to say it nicer, but that's just how it came out. You could do better. Living out the gospel means putting off a sinful lifestyle. We learned that. Putting on a righteous lifestyle. Brother Mike taught a couple weeks ago how living out the gospel means means, uh, not walking in the darkness, but walking in the light. Last week I said living in the gospel means walking carefully, circumspectly, Paul says, in an evil day. Now he's going to teach us. Beginning in verse 22 and into chapter 6, how living out the gospel ought to affect our relationships. You understand that, 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 that Paul's going to teach about the marriage relationship. He's going to teach about the parent-child relationship. And he's going to teach about the employer-employee relationship. Never tell me the Bible's not relevant. It's very, very practical. And, and Paul's going to start, like we're going to start today, where, where Paul started, and that is in the home. In our marriages. So I want to read verses 21, well, verse 22 rather, through verse 33. We'll come back to 21 here in just a few minutes. So let's read the text at large together. If you don't have your copy of God's Word, you can look on the screen. Paul begins with saying, wives, verse 22, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. He's the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord in the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his mother, or his father and mother, 
and should be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery that I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. How does the gospel affect our marriage? I think the truest measure of your Christianity is how you are at home. Did you catch that? The truest measure of how spiritual you are is how you are at home. That means when you're trying to gauge your current spiritual condition, you do not gauge it by how you're living at church. You don't gauge it foremost by how you're living at work or by how you're living out in your community. You, all those places are important, but you start in the home. You start under your own roof because it's under your roof where you're most comfortable. It's under your roof where you put your guard down. It's under your roof where you're most prone to be who you really are. It's under your roof where you can get away with being less than you should be. And so there's no pretenses. There's no, there's very little hypocrisy. It's, it's just a very accurate measure of your spirituality. But even more so than I want you to, to, to gauge your spirituality, your Christianity by means of your home in general, I want you to gauge it by means of your marriage specifically. So let me ask you, how is your marriage doing? Oh, really, how, how's it doing? I want you to consider the condition of your marriage right now. Did you know that, that, that there ought to be a noticeable difference between the marriage of two saved people and the marriage of two lost people? If you've been changed by the gospel, it ought to show up in how you treat your spouse. In fact, your marriage ought to be a portrait to the lost and dying world of the gospel. They ought to look in on your marriage and say, wow, that's the love of Jesus right there. Wow, that's patience. That's forgiveness. That's grace. That's forbearance. That's mercy. Boy, they must know Jesus. If that's not the case for your marriage today, here's the good news. You can start changing that right now. You know why I say that? It's never too late to do the right thing. If you came today and your marriage is not what it needs to be and you have very little hope that it will ever be what it needs to be, hear me closely. If you're a child of God and he's living inside of you, there's always hope. God can make your marriage into what he wants it to be if you're willing to let him. In our text, Paul gives the husband a responsibility and he gives the wife a responsibility for how they are each to live out the gospel in their marriages. Now today I'm going to start with the husband. Next week I'm going to talk to the wives. Now if you were paying attention, you would have noticed Paul started with the wives. And then he went to the husbands. And admittedly, I'm not as brave as Paul, Paul is. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit the husbands first because I am a husband. Then we'll talk to the wives next week when I hopefully have a week of gaining courage and boldness and strength. Or I might have my wife come preach. Who knows? In all seriousness, here's why I'm starting with the husbands today. Number one, the, the, the text says the husband's the head of the wife. If you get the head right, usually things fall in line. On top of that, Paul addresses the husband in this text three times more than he addresses the wife. Which tells me, husbands, if you'll get it right, there's a real good chance your wife will get it right too. It starts with the men. To the young men in here, look up here and listen closely. This, this message is for you too. You need to listen closely because this is the kind of husband you need to be one day. You hearing me? This is the kind of man that you need to be one day. How many have heard uh, uh, by a coach, he's not a coach anymore, but used to be a coach, Tony Dungy. 
He's a coach of the Indianapolis Colts. He's written several books. First book he wrote, he said, I wrote that because I coached men that weren't men. They had beards, but they had no character. They had muscles, but they had no maturity. They grew old, but they never grew up. And they would have pads and they would mesmerize their fans and the world and make hundreds of thousands of dollars. But they weren't men. They were boys in men's clothes. And he says, I'm burdened for America because there's too many boys not growing up to be men. Now, somebody say amen to that. Tony Dungy got it right. We need boys to grow up to be men. And young ladies, this message is for you too. Not because you're going to be a husband. Because maybe God wants you to be a wife one day. And you should settle for nothing less than the portrait of a gospel-centered husband in this text. Don't get desperate. Don't get in a hurry. I'll lead you to a number of ladies in our church that waited patiently for the right, for the right one. And they're living in happiness and joy and, and incredible partnership right now because of it. We're going to begin our study in verse 21, which you didn't read. So I want you to jump up to verse 21 because here's what Paul does. Now, before I read it, look up here. He's going to give a general responsibility that, that will funnel down into two individual responsibilities. But the individual responsibility of the husband and wife is going to be hinged upon this mutual responsibility. Submitting yourself, he says, one to another in the fear of God. Submit is a military term. Submission in that day was used to, to, for, for a soldier when, when he was asked to do something from, from a commanding officer. He would lay aside his agenda for the greater whole. So today when, when, when an army general will, will say to, to, to a private, hey, you do this and give him a command. The private does not say, you know what, that doesn't work for me right now. He submits by laying aside his agenda for the greater whole, even at the cost of his own life. A good soldier will do that. And Paul is saying this. Before I ever get into the idea of individual responsibilities in your marriage, here's what the husband and wife have to understand if they want a thriving marriage. They are both to submit to one another. I titled this message today, The Submissive Husband. But that would shock some because you think I should title it The Submissive Wife. Because Paul only, uh, it seems to be only applying it outright in verse 22, wives submit yourselves to your husband. And so us husbands interpret that to mean, well, the wives do the submitting and we do the bossing around. Well, you know that doesn't work anyway. But, but it's not biblical. Because if you jump up to verse 21, which is tied into the previous section, but a transition into the next one. Then for a thriving marriage to happen, it's not just the wife submit to the husband. It's mutual submission to each other. You get what I'm saying? And that's very important. This idea of submission is going to filter down to the child-parent relationship. It's not just the child submitting to the parent. It's the parent humbly submitting to the child. Now, how we do that's different. That doesn't mean the parent just does whatever the child wants to do. Don't get any ideas. And how the husband submits to the wife and how the wife submits to the husband. That's what Paul's going to flush out in the text. But here's how you got to understand. The gospel-centered marriage, it starts with mutual submission. Not the wife submitting. Mutual submission. To one another. That's how a marriage thrives. And then Paul moves into verse 22. Now I want you to catch that last phrase real quick. The prepositional phrase at the end of that verse. Submitting yourselves one to another with. How? In the fear of God. In other words, watch this. You should reverence God 
and respect God, fear God, and that should lead you to treat your spouse with mutual submission. So that does away with this whole idea that, that you can compartmentalize your spiritual life and your married life. Okay, your relationship with God and your relationship with your spouse, they go together. In fact, I would say this, that as you fear God and as you get your vertical relationship with Him right, then your horizontal relationship will come. You can't hope to submit to your spouse if you aren't in daily submission to God in your life. So this text really isn't ultimately about your relationship to each other. It's about your individual relationship to God. Listen, sir, listen, ma'am. If you aren't living in the fear of God, if you've never submitted to God by way of salvation, you've never been saved. If you aren't walking with God on a daily basis, you can only dream of having a good marriage. It begins with your relationship with God. And so Paul's going to teach. I'm going to, here's what he's going to teach. He's going to teach how the husband submits to the wife and how the wife submits to the husband. I'm going to give you the husband's responsibility of submission in a sentence. And then we're going to flush it out. We're going to go to work on it. Men, did you wear your steel toe boots? Are you ready? Here we go. Here's the sentence. The husband submits to his wife by leading her like Christ leads the church. Got to get that. That's basically the thesis statement of the entire message. We're going to go to work on this. But husbands, this is, the, you, you could really just narrow down the kind of husband you're supposed to be with that one sentence. You're supposed to submit by leading her like Christ leads the church. Look at verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Now listen, the first thing that all husbands need to understand in here is that God has made you the head of your home. It's okay to say amen to that, guys. It's, it's the Bible. It doesn't mean you're a male chauvinist. It doesn't mean that, that you're sexist. It doesn't mean you're out of line. We can say amen to this kind of preaching because it's the truth. What does that mean practically? It means that you're the leader in your home. Are you with me? And the text tells us what kind of leader you're supposed to be before you get too puffed up. You're supposed to be a servant leader because you're supposed to lead your wife like Christ leads the church. How do you, you leave the church? He died to be the savior of the church. Verse 20 says, 25 says he gave himself for the church. So we're not talking about using your leadership as leverage to get what you want. We're talking about servant leadership. What is a servant leader? I like this definition. A servant leader is one who takes initiative for the benefit of others. Initiative, that's leadership, but for the benefit of others, not themselves. So in marriage, here's what it means, guys. As a servant leader, you are to use your leadership to serve your wife. You shouldn't use your leadership to serve yourself. The idea of being the head of your home is not licensed to do what you want to do. It's an empowerment. Yeah, it's a calling to do what God wants you to do, to do what you ought to do. An author by the name of C.S. Lewis said this, men in the marriage relationship wear a crown, but the crown they wear is first and foremost one of thorns. Crown of thorns, that sounds familiar. Sounds like another servant leader we've read about, Jesus Christ. I conclude that men are never more like Jesus Christ when, than, than when they are willingly submitting themselves to servant leadership in their marriages. No, no, when you willingly wear that crown of thorns and sometimes even painfully endure giving up your preferences and your desires and laying aside your ego for the benefit of your wife. See, that's the reason why many marriages struggle is because men aren't taking up their calling of servant leadership. Even the first marriage struggled because the man didn't take up his calling of leading his wife. 
No, go back to the garden. Who sinned first? Adam or Eve? Some would say Eve because she ate of the forbidden fruit first. But don't forget that Genesis 3 says that Adam was with the woman when she ate. He failed in leading her and protecting her from eating the forbidden fruit. The first sin in the Bible is not one of commission, doing something uh, wrong. It's, it's, it's a sin of omission, failing to do what was right. Did Eve sin? You bet she sinned. But Adam sinned first when he failed to lead his wife. Humanity fell literally because a man didn't lead like Christ. How do I know it was Adam's fault? Because after they sinned, who did God go looking for? Did he say, Eve, where art thou? No, go read it. He said, Adam, where are you? And I want to ask the same thing today. Men, where are you? I want to ask the same thing. Where are all the men at? The real men at? Where are all the servant leaders? We've got men sitting on the couch watching football while their wife raises a family. We got men playing video games while the wife leads the family devotions, prays with the Bible, cooks the meal, and puts them all to bed. We've got men that are too busy being workaholics so they can have the next best thing while the wife is left by herself to raise the family. And as it stands now, a lot of men are on autopilot when it comes to their family. They come home and let their wives lead because they've led all day at work. Guys, if some of you showed the same level of initiative at work that you do at home, you'd be fired in a week. And leading your family is a much greater assignment than what you'll ever do at the workplace. It's your first and greatest assignment. Listen, men, your families will be most impacted when you're the one leading. Look at the statistics. Studies show that if a child is first to get saved in the family, 3.5% chance that, that the rest of the household gets saved. If mom is the first to get saved, 17% chance. But if dad is the first to get saved, 93% chance of the rest of the household getting saved. Never underestimate your leadership in the home, men. Tony Evans said this, as the man goes, so goes the family. As the family goes, so goes the church. As the church goes, so goes the community. As the community goes, so goes the nation. So he said, if you want to change the nation, change the community. If you want to change the community, change the church. If you want to change the church, change the family. If you want to change the family, change the man. It all starts with the man. It doesn't start with who's in the White House. It starts with who's leading in your house. Who's the servant leader in your house? God, give us a generation of men that will rise up and take up their mantle of calling, of being a servant leader in their marriage. That's where submission to your wife starts, by understanding and accepting your call to servant leadership. But Paul gets practical now. If you got it right, men... As a servant leader in your marriage, if you got it right tomorrow, what would that look like? You want to know? I'll tell you. It means that, number one, you're going to lead your wife in love. Here's what it looks like. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Verse 28. So ought men to love their wives. Verse 33. So love his wives. Why? The first human words recorded in the Bible was of Adam romancing his wife. So, so God created the heavens and the earth, light and darkness, the birds, all the fun things of the world. Adam named all the animals. Life was going great. Adam didn't know any better. Him and the animals in a perfect world. 
He was the leader, is good, is great. But God knew there was something missing. The only part about his creation that God said wasn't good was that Adam was by himself. He said, man cannot do with him for what a wife can do for him. And so here, here's, watch here. here. Here's what God does. He puts Adam to sleep. He performs a little surgery in the Garden of Eden. Puts him under anesthesia. Takes out a rib. Mixes it with a little dust. Poof! There's a woman. When Adam comes out of anesthesia, he begins to rub his eyes and he looks over. He's like, man, that's not a giraffe. <laughs> kind of looks like a fox, but it's, it's not a... See what I did there? See what I did there? Adam immediately started rehearsing a poem. He said, you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You are one of me, but you look better than I do. And he came to this conclusion. You're a woman. I think he called her a woman because the first thing he said was, whoa, man, when he saw her. I mean, waking up to a naked woman, never seen that in his life. Yeah, let's go. I like that. That's better than a giraffe. That's better than a chimpanzee. That's better than the flowers. That's good. That's for me. Whoa, man. I'm going to call you whoa, man. Woman. Adam, the very first words recorded was a man loving on his wife. There's not very many men that are willing to love on their wife anymore. Not very many men that are leading the way in, in romancing and cherishing and pursuing their wife. Don't get me wrong. I don't think you ought to write a poem. You're a bone of my bone, and flesh of my flesh. Whoa, man. I mean, it might be cool to do that, but you don't have to do that. See, for men to love on their wife consistently in that way, it comes as a struggle. Because God made men as hunters, as pursuers. And so, well, think about this. When men go out to hunt, they, they capture, they kill they stuff and they mount. And you know what they do? They go do it all over again. They capture, they kill, they stuff, and they mount. And maybe you can put eat in one of those too. And they just do that over and over. Well, in marriage, how did you get your wife? Well, you hunted for her. You pursued her. Maybe, you, I don't know if you put on camo, but, but you went after her. You maybe romanced her, you cherished her, you pursued her. You maybe even wrote a poem. Took her out to eat, bought her gifts, earned her love. You captured her. You got her. Well, here's how it's different than hunting an animal. You can't go capture another one, guys. Your hunting days are over. Now, here's what makes a good marriage. Men, when men will still hunt their wives, even though they already got them. But that goes against the way we're wired. But here's why marriages slowly fragment and fall apart. They stop hunting each other. They stop cherishing each other. They start pursuing, stop pursuing each other. Men, listen to me. You should lead the way in taking your wife on a date. Thank you, Brother Dave. Men, you should lead the way in taking your wife on a date. That, that means you ought to budget for it. You ought to schedule it. You ought to get the babysitters. That's called leadership. It's called pursuit. It's called love. Eve didn't do that to Adam. Adam did that to Eve. He was the leader. He loved her by doing that. You, you ought to study your wife men enough and know them well enough to, to, to know what makes them tick. The Bible says in another portion, when Peter's talking to husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. In other words, you, you, you ought to know what makes them feel loved. Did you know there's a difference 
in your wife knowing you love her and a wife feeling like you love her? Your wife might know you love her because you put a ring on her finger, you had a couple kids with her and you put food on the table for those kids. So she might intellectually know you love her, but she feel like you love her every single day? See, she'll only feel like you love her if you studied her well enough to do the things that make her feel loved. But most of the time we marry people different than us and so we try to love them the way we feel loved. But the way we feel loved is not the way they feel loved. And so we got to study the way they feel loved and do things over and over and over to make them feel loved. Even feels uncomfortable or foreign to the way we feel loved. Does that make sense? That's not really as, as, as complex as it sounds. You know what you got to do? Get to know your wife and love her in the way that she needs loved, even if that's not the way you need loved. Although these are just some basic ideas of loving her. And by the way, men of today in marriages expect their wives to pursue them, especially in the sexual relationship, without ever making a pursuit towards them before the sexual relationship. I'm just going to get real with you. You ought to love your wife enough to pursue her face to face and side by side before ever expecting her to pursue you belly button to belly button. Did I put that on the bottom shelf where you could understand it? You get what I'm saying? Yeah. Here's the point. Our leadership men in our home with our marriage, it doesn't begin with position. It doesn't begin with power. It doesn't begin with authority. You know where it begins? Love. Gentleness. Tenderness. Cherish. Pursue. Romance. Love. Second, you lead her in sacrifice. Look at the last part of verse 25. It says, and gave, talking about Christ as our example, and gave himself for it. Go, go down to verse 28 and 29. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. You know where those two, those two words nourish and cherish come from? They were, they were used most commonly in that day to describe the mother's care of her infant child that she was breastfeeding. Mother, does that picture come in your mind how much you nourish and cherish an infant? You sacrifice sleep and you sacrifice your own schedule and you sacrifice productivity and you sacrifice free time and you sacrifice energy because you love your baby. Because you're the leader in your baby's life at that point. You want to nourish it and cherish it. This is what Christ has done for the church. If you're a believer and you're saved, Christ nourishes you and he cherishes you by way of sending his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. He sacrificially has proven that he loves you. Men, this is how we are to lead our wife. Can I ask you, do you give of yourself to her continually? I know that you'll brag that you would die for your wife and take a bullet for her. I hope you would. I hope we all would as men. But most often, we'll never be called upon to do that. So I'm not asking if you'd be willing to die for her. I'm asking if you'd be willing to live for her. Are, are you willing to give up some of your time, some of your plans, some of your free space to meet the needs of your wife and your family? What does that look like in most decisions? Here's what it looks like. You're going to give her preferences and her desires more weight than your own. No, if I'm leading my wife sacrificially, it means that 90% of the places we disagree on, which aren't spiritual decisions, by the way, they're most of the time preferences, then I'm going to yield my preference to hers. And my preference is going to be secondary to hers. It means in your time, you're, you're going to sacrifice some things that you enjoy in order to meet the needs of your wife at the time. It doesn't mean that your life has to completely revolve around your wife. It simply means that when the time comes, you're willing to give up some things in order to meet her needs and to help your marriage thrive. I, I wonder, I wonder, who sacrifices the most in your marriage? Who sacrifices the most personal time in your marriage, you or your wife? 
Who adjusts their schedule the most? You for your wife or your wife for you? If, if it's you that sacrifices men, that's good. Don't begrudge your wife for that. Don't make her feel guilty for that. You're, you're leading her in a servant-like way. If it's her that gives up more for you, stop being selfish. Step up and lead. Here's a third way you lead her in spiritual matters. Look at verse 26 and verse 27. I was really hoping to get some more amens from the men that are at least trying to love their wives. Am I hitting you too hard today? You with me? Can you say amen to let me know you're alive right quick? All right, good, 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 good. I know you guys are tough for that. I'm not making you too mad. Come on now. Verse 26, that he might sanctify, talking about Jesus, might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. Then I present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So, so here's what, what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to wash our wives with the water of the word as Jesus has done that for us as believers and his church. Now, how has he washed us? Think about that. How are you washed and cleansed from your sin? With the word of the gospel. And you're continually sanctified and made pure and clean and holy before him through your exposure to his word. Now we understand that there's nothing a husband can do to, to wash away the sins of his wife. But you can lead your wife in such a way to help her grow in likeness to Christ. Sir, you are to be her chief spiritual influencer. Like Jesus, you are to be a big part of her spiritual sanctification and her spiritual growth. I want you to ask yourself this, men. Is my wife more like Christ because she's married to me? Or is she like Christ in spite of being married to me? Think about the first marriage. When Eve was brought to Adam, he already had a relationship with God. And you know what God entrusted to Adam? To relay his commands to Eve. This is where Adam utterly failed, leading her with the word. When Satan came and had his distortion of God's word, Adam just stood there twiddling his thumbs. Oh, I don't want to say anything to Eve. I might get in the doghouse. When he should have washed her with the water of the word in that moment, gently, lovingly, humbly. But he should have washed her with the water of the word. And you might be thinking, oh man, I don't know if I can do that because my wife knows more word than I do. My wife lives the word better than I do. I can't articulate the word. She's been saved longer than I have. She's just a godlier woman than me. I'd feel kind of like a hypocrite leading her. Well, just because you're a hypocrite doesn't take you off the throne of servant leadership in your home. There's no exception clause. Number one, stop being a hypocrite. Number two, get in the word. And until you do, start leading. Let me give you a couple simple ways you can lead in spiritual matters. Okay? Very, very practical. Before you go to bed tonight, you ready? Say this, sweetheart. How can I pray for you? That's it. How can I pray for you? After she picks up herself off the floor in shock, she actually might tell you. When she does, grab her hand and pray out loud for that one thing. You'll thank me later. In more ways than one, you'll thank me later. You'll say amen, look over. And she might be crying or smiling. But either way, as, as, as much as you fumbled through the prayer, she'll be grateful that you initiated some kind of spiritual activity in your relationship. I think some men think they've got, they, they got to be the perfect Christian in order to lead their wife. That's just not the case. Here's another simple way you can lead your wife with the word. You can be her primary mouthpiece declaring God's word and feelings about her. Listen, men, you communicate God's word to her by reminding her that she's valued and she's cherished. And she's precious in God's sight. And God has an amazing purpose for her life. 
Can you do this tomorrow, men? Shoot her one text tomorrow. Do the same thing Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Until next week. One text a day. And, and just put in that text a reminder. Number one, you love her. Number two, God loves her. And maybe you, you should look up. You can do it on Google. Look up God's attributes. Maybe shoot her a text on Tuesday and remind her that God is faithful to her. Shoot her a text on Wednesday, reminder of God's peace for her. Shoot her a text on Thursday, reminder of God's help for her. Reminder that God provides for her. Reminder that God will be her joy. That's washing her with the water of the word. And doing that continually will reap amazing benefits in her life and in your marriage. Can I ask you this? If your wife's confidence was built solely on your speaking the word of God to her and speaking encouragement to her, how confident would she be? You know, listen, wives, it's not up to your husband, by the way. Your identity and your confidence is in God. But you understand that your wife does lean on you for security, stability, emotionally, physically, spiritually, and otherwise. So you do men affect her confidence. And you do affect her sense of security and stability and emotional, physical, spiritual, all those realms. And if all of that, it, remove God from the equation for a moment. If all of that was depending on what you said to her last week, would she be stable today? How emotionally balanced would she be? Can I give you one more way to lead spiritually? If your marriage ever gets in a bad place, don't make your wife call the pastor. We Okay. You lead the way. Over 95% of the marriage cases I help, it's the wife that texts me. It's the wife that calls me. It's the wife that says, can you, can you do this? Can you do that? And it's, also, it's almost awkward. I'm like, where's the dude? Where's the man? Why, is, why are all the women more desperate for God-centered marriages than men are? Why are we so passive? Why does our wives care more about spiritual matters than we do? Why isn't it men calling me saying, you know, I'm in a bad slump right now. Our marriage is in a bad spot. It's probably mostly me, but we both need your help. Can you put us under sound counsel and God's word? Can you? Why isn't it the men calling me? It's because men are prideful. It's because men are self-sufficient. It's because men are spiritually lazy. Spiritually lazy. Yeah. Hey. I'm not waiting to the Amen conference to shoot. This is in the text, man. If we want to fix our nation, we fix our men. I don't care who you voted for. I want to know how you treated your wife last week. That's how we change our nation. That's how we strengthen our church. That's how we make our community better. Amen? Yeah, you lead her spiritually. Let me give you one more. You lead her in provision. I know this a little bit longer. I got a lot to cover. It's a lot in my soul right now. Verse number 31. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, shall be joined into his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. There's a lot of principles in that verse. I want to pick out one. Listen, sir, you're to provide for her, not either of your parents. She is yours to look after. She is yours to nourish. She is yours to protect before God, listen to this, before God ever created the one woman for Adam, he had the man working in the garden. In other words, Adam had a job before he had a wife. Men, you ought to be hard workers. And I'm thankful we have a pretty blue-collared church. I love it. 
I love it. We got a lot of hardworking men in this place. That doesn't mean women can't work outside the home. It doesn't mean women can't have successful businesses or or help in some way to provide for the family. They just shouldn't have to bear that weight entirely because you're lazy. I found that sometimes the wife doesn't have to bear the the weight of provision for their family because the, the husband's lazy. He goes out and works. It's because the husband's irresponsible with the money that he makes. So the wife has to work extra and doesn't get to spend a lot of her hard earned money because the husband is out wasting all of his. Hello. So, man, you might you might pass the laziness test. Do you pass the financial stewardship test? How's your spending? The number one cause of stress in a marriage is finances. Number one cause. Men, you ought to lead the way in that. You have a budget? Do you spend only what you can afford? Or do you drive your family deeper, deeper, deeper into debt because of your irresponsibility and impulsiveness? And can I give a quick application for single ladies? Listen, ladies, no matter your age, if you're single, if the guy you're interested in can't hold a job, still uses his parents' credit cards, eats their food, lives in their basement rent-free, and has run a Call of Duty tournament at age 28, you should probably pass on that one. Get you a man that's currently providing for himself and has the character to provide for you. Amen. Amen. I'm telling you, I got a lot more in my notes than I go on. It's 11.54. We got to go home. Here's what I want you to know, man. I preach this to myself all week long. I stand before you as as a, a husband with all kinds of deficiencies. Did you notice in the text that Paul, when he said, follow this as your example of a husband, he didn't say Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, or any of the other Bible hearers, and he didn't say you're a pastor because there is no one worthy of being an example of a husband other than Jesus. And if I've come, if I've come across confident, it's because I'm confident in God's word. I'm not confident in me as a husband. If I come across bold, that's only a tribute to the Holy Spirit driving these truths in me as he convicted me and brought me to my knees multiple times this week. I stand before you, a man desperately in need of the gospel. Desperately in need of Jesus' empowerment and example in my life to be a husband that I should be. Can we just rehearse what you're supposed to do, men, this week? Look at it. Put that up there, Tammy. I think I've got a list. Lead in love. Men, practical. Go plan a date. Go do it. Go plan a date. You pay. Don't make her pay. You, 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 one guy said, uh, he said, you know what I ask my wife when I, when I ask her where we're going on a date? I say, hey, babe, you want to go to McDonald's or somewhere cheap? So don't, don't ask that question. That's not a good question. I'll spot you 20 bucks if you need a little extra money. Take her to somewhere nice. All right. Lead her in love. Lead her in sacrifice. Quit making or adjust her schedule to fit yours all the time. Lead in spiritual matters. Ask her what you can pray for about. Send her a text. Something with the word God in it would be nice. And if you're in desperate need of help in your marriage, whether you think it's her fault or not, sir, get some help. Lead the way. And lead in provision. Work hard and manage what you earn wisely and responsibly so as to produce security, stability, and confidence in your wife. That's how you love her. In a sentence, here it is. 
The husband submits to his wife by leading her like Christ leads the church. Sir, she should look at you and see Jesus Christ. Oh, I know you'll never be, never be close to Jesus, but you should at times, when you're doing it right, you should give her a glimpse of how Jesus loves her. Just a glimpse. Now, she'll be loved like that in heaven for all of eternity by Jesus. But until she gets there, you're her picture. Make her feel good, confident. Yeah. Which leads me to conclude the message this way. If you're supposed to be a picture of Jesus to her, then you need to know Jesus. Sir, are you saved? You can go out tomorrow and try to do all these things that I just taught you to do. You're going to burn out and you're going to blow up. Here's why. Without a relationship with Jesus, you'll fail every time. Any change will be short-lived. Has there been a time when you've believed in the gospel? You've trusted Christ to be the Lord of your life, repented of your sin, and it's made a difference in you? Has there been that time in your life? If not, I want, you know what you need to do today? You need to get saved today. You need to come forward in the invitation. Let somebody show you how you can get saved. You need to talk to me in the foyer after church. Let me show you. Hey, you say, you need to call me this week. Say, I need to talk to you. I will set things aside to talk to you this week if your husband in need of some counsel, in need of some help. You need Jesus, sir. And husbands that know Jesus, we ought to run to the altar today. You hearing me? I don't care if you're uncomfortable. I don't care if you're nervous. Our humility starts here. And we lay aside that and we say, God, help me to be what I need to be. Don't, don't, don't pray for your wife to be what she needs to be. If the head gets it right, everything else usually gets it pretty good. It starts with us. Thank you for listening to God's word. Stand to your feet. Every head passed.